On Wednesday, October 10th, 2012, Peter Chadwick and his wife Kui Chu disappeared from their Newport Beach home in California. The following day, Peter made a call to 911 from a gas station close to the Mexican border to inform them that his wife had been murdered and he had been taken hostage but managed to get away. Despite the story he told authorities, Peter Chadwick quickly became the primary suspect in his wife's disappearance and was arrested. In December of 2012, Peter managed to get released from custody on bail, and before he could stand trial, vanished without a trace. Join me now as we take a look into the murder of Kui Chu and the disappearance of Peter Chadwick. We'll examine the horrific details of a tragedy that shook an entire community to its core, leaving three young boys without parents. A manhunt that still continues to this very day for one of the U.S. Marshals' 15 Most Wanted Fugitives. Newport Beach is a peaceful coastal community in Southern California, a city famous for its large harbor, piers, an amusement park, and stunning ocean views. Visitors can enjoy high-end shopping and dining, or a lazy day at the beach, followed by a frozen treat from one of the many food stands. In 2012, the Chadwicks lived in an affluent area of southern Newport Beach called the Newport Coast. The family's $2.5 million home was situated in a gated community in Almanzora. The idyllic two-story Mediterranean-style house had neatly manicured landscaping and a spectacular view of the Pacific Ocean. 46-year-old Kui Chu, nicknamed QC, came from a large, wealthy Malaysian family and was one of six children. Friends described QC as gregarious, outgoing, and friendly. The life of the party, who loved dressing up and having fun with friends. She was also known as a terrific hostess. No guest had to wait long before being offered food and drinks. Everyone was made to feel instantly at home. Other friends, however, acknowledged QC's insecurities. Since arriving to America, she had always struggled to fit in to the U.S. culture. She also believed she was inferior to her siblings because they were more educated, each earning master's degrees. This left her wondering if she was as smart and capable as the rest of her high-achieving family. At first, QC's insecurities caused her to heavily rely on her husband Peter, who she met back when they were both attending Arizona State University. It didn't take long before the pair became college sweethearts, and they married a short time later. By 2012, Peter was a 48-year-old multi-millionaire real estate mogul. Born in Britain, 
he became a U.S. citizen in 1991. Peter's father, Michael, built a real estate empire, providing him with the luxury of following in his father's footsteps. He worked for the family business, spending his days managing assets and investments while also developing real estate. Unlike the outgoing QC, Peter was a quiet man, docile and soft-spoken. QC's friends found him to be incredibly shy and distant. Karen Thorpe, a family friend, went as far as to say that Peter was a bit of a mystery. Although in some respects they were the opposite, QC loved Peter and in the beginning depended on him to help her acclimatize to being a U.S. citizen. But over time, their relationship changed. Family and friends noticed QC slowly starting to rely on Peter less and less. Over the years, she had gained confidence and felt empowered to take more control and do things her way. One of the ways her newfound confidence revealed itself was in her role as a stay-at-home mom. By 2012, QC and Peter had three children, boys aged 9, 12, and 15. QC was an extremely devoted mother whose life revolved around raising her children. Even her passwords for her various computer accounts reflected her love for her boys, with versions such as For My Three Sons and Three Sons Forever. QC took an organized and regimented approach to running the household, creating detailed instructions and schedules for her children, as well as her husband. Strategic notes were posted throughout the home, reminding family members to keep things tidy, to close doors, and to keep on task. Most of QC's scheduling to keep her family on track was illustrated on a large whiteboard. The board included a detailed schedule breakdown by days of the week and hours of the day, various key reminders, and heartfelt motivational messages such as the all-too-apt, prepare for the worst, hope for the best. QC's main focus was on her children's education. Given her feelings of inadequacy when comparing her academic achievements to those of her siblings, it is unsurprising QC longed for her children to excel where she believed she fell short. One of the ways QC ensured her children had a strong academic foundation was by enrolling all three of them in private schools. Their oldest son was away at a prep school in Ohio, California, while the two youngest attended the Pegasus School in Huntington Beach. The elite pre-kindergarten through grade 8 school prides itself on recognizing ability must be combined with character and integrity to embrace and grow the whole child. QC was determined her children complete all their homework, excelled academically, and participated in at least some extracurricular activities. Part of the need for the rigid scheduling was to fit in music lessons and sports 
around the required homework time. QC guided her sons to be well-rounded children and to excel in all that they did. One of their sons participated in an after-school cross-country program and even made time to practice running with his father. Nothing seemed amiss in the Chadwick household. Neighbors said the family seemed happy and were always nice. Nothing was wrong. This, however, was far from the truth. There were simmering tensions in Peter and Cusey's relationship that became harder and harder to ignore. Family friends noticed comments about divorce cropping up in conversation, and QC emotionally told her close friends Peter was no longer affectionate. QC slowly became suspicious Peter was unfaithful. Her fears that he was leading a double life were confirmed when she checked his computer history. A devastated QC wrote down her findings, creating a list with the heading from Pete's computer. The neatly numbered list documented 35 searches from Peter's internet history. The search phrases found included abortion cost in California, Chinese massage girls escort, Team Tijuana escort girls, divorce Vicky Tran, California, and disturbingly, how to torture. Although shattered by her husband's lies and infidelity, QC tried to turn a blind eye and made their marriage work for the sake of their children. Because for QC, it was always about their children. Wednesday, October 10th, 2012 was your typical sunny fall day in Southern California. But for the Chadwicks, the only thing that ended up being typical on that particular day was the weather. After Peter dropped his two youngest boys off at school around 7 a.m., he headed to work. When classes ended at 3.15 p.m., the brothers hopped on a private bus the school supplied and made their way back to Newport Beach. The bus then dropped the Chadwick boys off at the bus stop near San Joaquin Hills Road and Newport Coast Drive, where they waited every afternoon for their dad to pick them up after school. But he never arrived. Their 12-year-old son repeatedly tried calling his parents, but there was no answer. The boys' panic grew as all the other children who had been waiting for rides had already been picked up. Over an hour later, Gwen, a neighbor of the Chadwicks, happened to drive by and recognized the boys. Her children also attended the same school, and she'd already picked them up from a different bus stop on Bonita Canyon Drive. Gwen was instantly concerned, as the Chadwicks were known for being organized and punctual. They weren't the type of parents who would leave their children abandoned at a bus stop. After loading the brothers into her car, she drove them home. But when they arrived at the Chadwick home, the door was locked and no one answered the door. Neither of the boys had a key because they never needed to. 
Their parents had always been there to pick them up after school from the bus stop. Gwen and the boys repeatedly knocked loudly on the door, rang the doorbell, and called the house. But there was no answer. Packages that must have been delivered throughout the day were also stacked on the porch. Gwen then took the Chadwick boys to her house, and they sat down to dinner with her family while she tried to locate their parents. Finally, at around 7 p.m., out of ideas and unable to locate either of the boys' parents, Gwen decided it was time to call the Newport Beach Police Department for assistance. The police started their search for the Chadwicks by calling family members and questioning neighbors, trying to find out if anyone had any idea where the couple might have gone. They even checked the local hospitals, but they came up empty-handed. By 7.45 p.m., the authorities decided to forcibly enter the Chadwick home and perform a welfare check. At first glance, Nothing seemed amiss, but before long, evidence stood out from the otherwise pristine and orderly house. Two white plates sat on the kitchen counter, surrounded by small containers of food. It was as if the family had been interrupted while in the midst of preparing lunch. As the police moved throughout the home, they noticed a door that connected the house to the garage was open. Even stranger, they saw a large safe in the office that was ajar, and its contents had been rifled through. With growing dread, the authorities climbed the stairs and checked the master bedroom suite for the Chadwicks. In the bedroom, QC's phone was found charging on the dresser, with her wedding ring and wallet close by. The police were now quite positive. Whatever had happened in the house was not your run-of-the-mill robbery. In the master bathroom, they noted the floor mat was rumpled and slightly out of place, and a towel with brownish-red stains on it was in a pile on the floor. Shards of broken glass from a decorative vase lay scattered along the backsplash of the jetted soaker tub. Inside the tub, the officers found a faded, reddish smudge. Tiny droplets of what looked like blood was evident on the wall and towel rack. The police were starting to suspect they had stumbled onto a crime scene. While the worried Chadwick children stayed with relatives, the police applied for and received search warrants so that the crime scene investigators could process evidence in the home. QC and Peter were then also entered into the missing persons database. As authorities canvassed the area, speaking to many of the Chadwick's neighbors, one reported hearing someone who sounded like QC screaming loudly one morning earlier in the week. Although the Chadwick's minivan remained parked in their garage, 
their Lexus SUV was missing. The security video from the guard shack of the gated community showed the missing vehicle leaving at 1.32 p.m. on the afternoon the Chadwicks vanished. Attempts to locate Peter by tracking his cell phone were fruitless, as his phone had been shut off since 4.30 p.m. that day. After checking with the U.S. Border Patrol to make sure the Chadwick's Lexus had not crossed the Mexican border and placing a bolo or be on the lookout on the vehicle, the search intensified. Search teams combed the hills surrounding the Chadwick's home and helicopters looked for the missing couple from the air. The authorities and the Newport Beach community were baffled. In general, the crime rate in Newport Beach is low, especially in terms of violent offenses. When crime does happen, it's typically non-violent property crimes, such as theft and burglary. Home invasions, kidnapping, and murders were extremely rare. So where were QC and Peter Chadwick? The answer came at 5.31 a.m., on Wednesday, October 11th, 2012, just one day after the couple had disappeared. A 911 call was received by the San Diego Police Department from an ARCO station in San Diego on Del Sol Boulevard, a mere four miles from the Mexican border, and roughly 100 miles from the Chadwick family home. The caller was Peter Chadwick, and he had an elaborate tale to tell. Nine emergency. Yeah, my wife. My wife's dead. Okay, so where exactly is she? They took her. They took her. Who took her? The guy broke into my house. He he drove me here. He, he had a friend. They they just gone. They've gone in a pickup truck. Okay, so your wife did that. She's dead. Uh, they, they killed her. They, they, and they took they, her corpse. Yeah, they 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 killed killed her uh, yesterday. They killed her yesterday. Yeah, we 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 we've been driving uh, in in Newport Beach. Okay, hold on. Let me get my supervisor on the phone. He said that his. Wife is dead, but someone broke into dead. the house and stole and uh, he, he took her. Yeah. He, he, we, okay. What? He what? Found her. He. I. He, Who is he? he? Um. Um. Juan. 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 How do you know Juan? Uh. I picked him up to to look at some painting work at the house. I brought him to the house. And when did this happen? Yesterday, middle of the day. Yesterday, in the middle of the day. And when did she die? Yesterday, middle of the day. Okay, and where is she uh, now? Like 11. Uh, they have her body. They said they're going to cut her up. Who has her body? Juan and Chi. Okay, so when she died at 11 o'clock, they took her? Yeah, yeah. They, they maybe put her in the car. We. <sighs> How do you know she's dead? She drowned. She drowned. What? Her body was stiff, even. I've been driving with them. They, they say they're going to cut her up. What's your name? Peter Chadwick. 
Are you on any kind of medication, sir? Not heavy ones. Okay. It's not that. Okay. Because I, I think they're going, uh, they might be going to Mexico or somewhere. Okay, but this happened yesterday at 11. You're now calling us at 5.30 in the morning. I know. I, I want you to get him. Huh? Yeah. They're here. Okay, go talk to him. According to Peter, shortly before 11 a.m. the previous day, he stopped by one of his management properties. While he was there, a handyman named Juan had asked him if he had any small jobs he could offer him. Peter told him, that all the work for the property had been completed. But he did have some interior stairway railings that could use some painting, if he was interested. Juan agreed, and Peter drove him to the family home. After arriving around 11 a.m., Juan started to prep painting the railings that connected the entrance to the landing at the top of the stairs. That's when Peter claimed to have headed into his office to do some work. Within minutes, Peter said he heard QC screaming his name. When he ran up the stairs and into the master bedroom, he told authorities he was confronted with a terrifying sight. Juan was strangling and drowning QC in the jacuzzi bathtub. Peter said he tried his best to intervene, but Juan had threatened him with a two-inch pocket knife, leaving him unable to save his wife. After the handyman drowned QC, Peter said he then ordered him to haul QC's body out of the tub, and he was forced to roll her up in a green blanket. He was then instructed to place QC in the back seat of the family's SUV. Before leaving the house, Juan supposedly demanded Peter to open up the family safe and hand over $10,000 in cash, along with jewelry and other valuables. He also asked for Peter's cell phone. Juan then made Peter drive all night until they had almost reached the Mexican border. Throughout the drive, Peter said the handyman sat in the back seat, holding a knife to his throat. He also apparently made a call to a man named Chi and carried on the conversation in Spanish so Peter couldn't understand what was being said. According to his story, Peter and Juan then met Chi at the Arco station the gas station Peter eventually made the 911 call from. Chi was driving a dark green Chevy pickup truck with a camper shell on it. Juan told Peter if he didn't cooperate, he would cut up QC's body and spread her remains throughout Mexico, and she would never be found. The two men then loaded QC's body, the cash and jewelry from the safe, into the truck. But before leaving Peter behind, Juan promised he would call him and tell him where he could find his wife's body. After waiting for a few minutes and not hearing back from Juan, Peter said he then headed to the gas station and called 911. Officers arrived at the scene within minutes, taking Peter in for questioning. After police got Peter to the station, they quickly became suspicious of him. In their initial interview with him, Peter could barely offer a description of Juan, a man he had just spent several hours with. The only thing he could recall was his name, and that his hair was dark and was worn in a crew-cut style. He couldn't provide a useful description of Chi either. Even more bizarre, Peter's story had QC being murdered 
shortly after 11 a.m. But the Chadwick's Lexus had not left the family home until the early afternoon. Surveillance cameras at the exit of the gated community and the toll booth Peter and Juan had to go through en route to the gas station also didn't even show Juan in the vehicle. Neither surveillance cameras or witnesses could place Juan or Chi at the Arco station either. Peter tried to substantiate his story by telling investigators he and Juan had encountered a California Highway Patrol officer when they had pulled over on the side of the road on the southbound 73 freeway right before the MacArthur Boulevard exit on Wednesday, October 10th at around noon. When police contacted the officer, he vividly recalled pulling up behind the SUV, approaching it on the passenger side, and telling the driver he had to move on, that he couldn't remain stopped on the side of a busy highway. The officer gave an excellent description of Peter and had noted the license number. But oddly, he was positive there was no one else present in the vehicle. Police searched the SUV and found blood on the bumper and on the back seat, as well as one of QC's diamond rings that had fallen in the cracks between the leather seats. They also found a black suitcase in the back seat of the vehicle that was packed full of Peter's toiletries and clothing. They couldn't help but wonder if a kidnapper really would have given Peter time to pack a bag. Peter also had noticeable bruises, scratches on his face and neck, a bite mark on his forearm, and dried blood caked on his hands. Peter tried to explain away the incriminating injuries by saying at one point he and Juan had been in some kind of a struggle. But like the rest of his story, the account was vague and hard to believe. The authorities collected Peter's blood-stained clothing, swabbed his mouth, and took fingernail and hair samples. Throughout the interview, the investigators were suspicious of Peter's behavior. He theatrically fluctuated between being unemotional and sleepy to frantic and hysterical, including weeping that did not result in one visible tear. Even more oddly, Peter never asked once about his sons. He showed no concern about where they were or of their safety. Peter still displayed this seemingly lack of concern when only six hours after calling 911, he was arrested for the murder of QC. The investigators then faced the grim task of informing the Chadwick sons that their mom was deceased and that their dad had been arrested for a murder. After detectives picked up all the boys from their schools and had them surrounded by family and social workers, they broke the heartbreaking news to them. QC's brother David, who was especially close to his nephews, comforted the boys and offered whatever support he could. The three brothers were utterly devastated. On October 15th, Peter's arraignment hearing was held in Santa Ana 
and he pleaded not guilty to murdering his wife. He had retained the best defense lawyers money could buy and stopped talking to the police. Police knew they still had to find QC in order to give her children some sense of closure and to strengthen their case against Peter. So they searched areas within a radius they thought Peter might have had time to dump his wife's body. For a week, search parties combed San Diego and Orange County, checking ravines, industrial parks, secluded areas, and a number of dumpsters. But there was no sign of QC. Then, a tip came in that police refused to discuss publicly. The tip steered five police officers to search in rural southern San Diego for QC. Their destination was the Wildcat Canyon, an extremely remote region over 100 miles from Newport Beach. Homes in the area there are built far off the street with long, winding driveways. Because regular municipal garbage pickup isn't available, many of the owners have small dumpsters at the bottom of their driveways that are serviced by various private companies. After arriving, the officers dispersed and made their way along Muth Valley Road, searching dumpsters as they went. As one of the officers approached a dark blue dumpster covered in graffiti, he was immediately struck by the smell of decay. Flies were swarming around the lid. Underneath the assorted trash, he could see a dark green blanket that matched the description of the one Peter had said he rolled QC's body up in. He knew it was time to call in crime scene investigators. QC had finally been found. Interestingly, a year prior, another body had been discovered in the very same dumpster. Nevertheless, police never suspected the homeowners of being involved in either murder. Instead, they just had the bad luck of owning a property that was so isolated it made for a good dumping ground. Finding QC's body was even a bigger break than authorities first thought. They learned that the dumpster had been scheduled for pickup on Thursday, October 11th at 6.30 a.m., the morning after police believed Peter disposed of QC's body in it. If not for a billing dispute between the homeowners and the garbage removal company, QC may never have been found. The San Diego coroner confirmed it was indeed QC's body in the dumpster, but there was never much doubt. Amongst the trash in the bin, the crime scene investigators had found an expensive-looking purse. The purse contained QC's ID, her permanent residency card, and $10,000 in cash, everything Peter had said Juan had stolen from the house and had taken to Mexico. When the coroner conducted QC's autopsy, it was concluded she had been the victim of a violent assault and had died from strangulation, as well as a possible drowning. Police theorized that on Wednesday, October 10, 2012, Peter and QC 
had gotten into a heated argument. After speaking with the Chadwick's family and friends and going over evidence that had been collected, authorities believed the argument was likely caused by Peter's infidelities and his disturbing internet searches, as well as QC's growing desire for a divorce. QC had learned of her husband's dark side, and he had snapped. Peter then became enraged, strangling and drowning QC in their master bathroom. Even though murdering QC in this manner would have taken several long, excruciating minutes, Peter remained committed to his terrible decision and didn't stop until his wife stopped breathing. He then wrapped her body in a green blanket and placed it in the back of the family SUV, as he said. That had been the only truthful part of his fictitious story to police. After trying to clean up as best as he could, Peter took jewelry, cash, and QC's important papers from the safe to make it look like a robbery had occurred. Peter then drove around with QC's body in the vehicle for roughly 10 hours, trying to decide how to hide her remains. While searching for a secluded area, he came upon Muth Valley Road and its selection of isolated dumpsters to choose from. After discarding his wife's body in the dumpster, he then headed back into town to the Arco station and called 911. Even though the case against Peter seemed rock solid now that QC's body had been found, he still wanted to be out on bail. In California, bail is usually set for $1 million in murder cases, but the investigators believed Peter was a flight risk because he had access to millions of dollars and already abandoned his children once. So they reached out to the Central Justice Center in Orange County and requested Peter's bail be revoked. They wanted Peter to remain in custody until his trial. The state of California, however, has a specific statute regarding bail. It states, In setting, reducing, or denying bail, a judge or magistrate shall take into consideration the protection of the public, the seriousness of the offense charged, the previous criminal record of the defendant, and the probability of his or her appearing at trial or at a hearing of the case. The public safety should be the primary consideration. After considering the statute, the judge ruled Peter's lack of criminal background, deep roots in the community, a history of being a responsible parent, indicated he was not a flight risk. Instead of revoking bail, the judge merely raised it to $1.5 million. To counter this decision, the Orange County DA's office added a special circumstances enhancement to Peter's allegations. Murder for financial gain. The authorities argued Peter had murdered QC for a life insurance policy and changed the charges to one felony count of special circumstances murder for financial gain. For a couple of months, this tactic worked and Peter was held without bail. But in December, after prosecutors failed to produce enough evidence to substantiate their claim that Peter had murdered his wife for financial gain, the judge allowed Peter to post bail 
and reduced the amount back down to $1 million. Peter promptly met the new bail requirements. Although forced to turn over his U.S. and U.K. passports and live with his father in Santa Barbara, California until the trial, Peter was out of jail by Christmas and was basically a free man. The Newport Beach community and all those who knew and loved QC were horrified by Peter's release. Karen, a family friend of the Chadwicks, told the media, I heard he got out on bail, and I remember being absolutely infuriated and disgusted. He shouldn't be out on bail. In Karen's mind, Peter was unequivocally guilty, and his shameless behavior was maddening. She was stunned when he sent out a group email inviting family and friends to a 100-day candlelight vigil for QC, a vigil that was held in the exact same house where Peter had murdered her. Two years went by, and the authorities did their best to keep tabs on Peter. All three of the Chadwick boys were put in boarding school, but their father still had access to them when arranged by QC's family, who was caring for the boys when they weren't away at school. The investigators knew they were headed to trial, and they felt confident with their case against Peter. Considering the amount of forensic evidence they had gathered and the circumstantial evidence they had been able to piece together, they believed it wouldn't be long before Peter was found guilty for the murder of QC. The case slowly wound its way through the criminal justice system, with Peter making the three-hour trek back and forth to Orange County from his father's house to his court appearances a total of 13 times before early January 2015. But in January 16, 2015, Peter didn't appear for a routine hearing. Failing to show up to court was a breach of his bail conditions, and his lawyer confessed he had no idea where Peter was. The judge issued a bench warrant for Peter's arrest in the amount of $250,000 but gave Peter the benefit of the doubt, stating, if Peter was present at the next hearing scheduled for January the 28th, he would withdraw the warrant and let the hearing proceed as per usual. But again, he didn't show up. His lawyer explained that despite his best efforts, he was unable to locate Peter. He suggested to the court that his client had been very depressed, so much so, that his family was concerned he may have committed suicide. The judge decided it was time to act. However, even though the district attorney's office asked for the bench warrant for Peter's arrest to be set to $10 million, the judge settled on only $1 million again. In the end, if Peter ever was found, it would be highly unlikely he would ever be permitted to post bail again, considering he had already proven to be a flight risk. The investigators started their search for Peter, but he'd had a three-week lead on them. It didn't take long for them to discover. He had emptied millions of dollars from seven of his bank accounts and had taken the maximum cash advances possible on his numerous credit cards. Not only was there now no money to help care for his children, 
but there would be hundreds of thousands of dollars owed to collection agencies. The authorities also learned that there was a record of someone taking a cab from Peter's father's house to the airport in Santa Barbara on January 9th. The taxi driver said the passenger was a woman, but police were suspicious. It had been Peter in disguise. Video surveillance from the airport confirmed their suspicions. The passenger that was dropped off at the airport entered with a suitcase. The police suspected that once inside the airport, Peter changed his clothing in one of the washrooms. They came to this conclusion because a short while later, airport security footage showed Peter dressed as himself, wandering around the airport killing time. Security cameras tracked Peter wandering through the airport for hours. But instead of boarding a plane, he exited the airport and entered a different taxi, never to be seen again. The Million Dollar Mogul had become a fugitive. The U.S. Marshals Service joined the search for Peter in early 2015. During their investigation, they learned that Peter had been studying up on how to survive on the lam for quite some time. He'd been reading books titled How to Change Your Identity, How to Live on the Run Successfully, and Surviving in Mexico. Not only that, he'd also been making test travel trips to Pennsylvania and Seattle and attempted another trip to Missouri. In doing so, Peter confirmed he was not under constant surveillance. He had at least some freedom to move within the U.S. In November of 2017, a task force was formed to capture him. With the possibility that Peter could be anywhere in the world, the task force team, comprised of the Newport Beach Police Department, the Orange County District Attorney's Office, the United States Marshals Service, the Department of Homeland Security, the State Department, the U.S. Attorney's Office, and Interpol. On Wednesday, September 19, 2018, after nearly a year had passed with no solid lead on Peter's whereabouts, a press conference was held in Newport Beach. Police spokesperson Jennifer Manzella explained to the media that a new approach was being taken in the case. She then introduced speakers who gave more details. When U.S. Marshal David Singer went up to the podium, he highlighted how Peter had been added to the U.S. Marshal Service's 15 Most Wanted Fugitive list. For U.S. Marshal Singer, it was only a matter of time until he would be caught. The U.S. Marshal Service reserves placement on our 15 most wanted fugitive list for those suspected of the most heinous crimes, such as the ones Peter Chadwick is accused of committing. Our deputies, along with our federal, state, and local law enforcement partners, will leave no stone unturned until Chadwick is behind bars. It's, the, it's not a matter of if we catch him, it's a matter of when. Our track record stands behind that statement. Since the inception of the 15 Most Wanted program in 1983, 243 15 Most Wanted fugitives have been arrested. We look forward to adding Chadwick to that arrest count. The U.S. Marshal Service always stands ready to assist with locating and arresting our nation's most dangerous and high-profile fugitives. And we are here today with that same commitment 
to the Chadwick case in the Newport Beach Police Department. Thank you very much. In addition to Peter being featured on the U.S. Marshals' 15 Most Wanted Fugitive list, the announcement of a $100,000 reward was also made. The Chief of Police for Newport Beach, John T. Lewis, discussed the reward, how Peter had abandoned his family, and why it had been so difficult to find the fugitive. On October 11, 2012, the Newport Beach Police Department arrested Peter Chadwick for the murder of his wife. But almost six years later, we haven't had the satisfaction of seeing him stand trial. Our investigators have put together all the reports, the witness statements, the evidence that we need, and we're confident in our case. The one thing missing is our defendant. In January 2015, Peter Chadwick disappeared. He left behind his three boys who had already suffered the loss of their loving mother. We've never given up on locating him and bringing justice and closure to QC's three sons and everyone who knew and loved her. With the partnership of the United States Marshal Service and the support of the City of Newport Beach and private donors, I'm pleased to announce that we are now offering a $100,000 reward for Mr. Chadwick's capture. Peter could be anywhere in the world. He's got the financial means to avoid the restrictions placed on his travel, and he's taken every opportunity to hide his tracks. We want to spread his picture and the story of his crimes far and wide. We want everyone to be looking for Peter Chadwick. Chief Lewis also told the media that the Newport Beach Police Department had started a unique and exciting project, a true crime podcast called Countdown to Capture. The department hoped its podcast production would draw attention to the case and help to capture Peter. It's extremely rare for police to write and produce their own podcast, but considering Peter's resources, the department knew they needed to take an innovative approach if they wanted to see Peter answer for his crimes. Authorities believed Peter could be anywhere. He had ties to the UK, China, Thailand, Malaysia, and Canada, and the Chadwick family often traveled internationally. There were theories abroad amongst law enforcement as to where Peter might be. Craig McCluskey, Supervisory Inspector, for the U.S. Marshals Service Pacific Southwest Regional Fugitive Task Force thinks Peter is hiding in an Asian country because Peter had visited Asian countries multiple times. Also, not only did Peter have a Malaysian wife, his internet browsing history revealed he prefers Asian sex workers. Police spokesperson Jennifer Manzella reported the Newport Beach Police Department believes there may be some tie between our suspect and Vancouver. It seems Peter enjoyed vacationing in Vancouver with his family. There has, however, yet to be a credible sighting of Peter in Canada. U.S. Marshal Craig McCluskey proposed, Peter is hiding in Mexico. McCluskey supposes Peter headed north to Canada to throw investigators off his trail, but then made his way to Mexico. Peter was also reportedly in a bus accident in Mexico in 2017. Moreover, one of Peter's sons told authorities his father had been planning to leave the country since 2014. Peter even mentioned Mexico and how he intended to establish himself in a foreign country by obtaining a place to live and getting a menial job. One cannot help but wonder, though, 
If the book Peter had left behind called Surviving in Mexico and the comments he made to his son were nothing but an elaborate smokescreen used to throw off investigators from his actual destination, Peter could be anywhere. Although authorities don't think Peter has been in contact with or received assistance from his son since he'd been on the run, they do think he's getting help from someone. Peter's father, Michael, moved to Pennsylvania. In 2017, the U.S. Marshals Service captured video surveillance video of a shadowy figure entering his home. They think it might have been Peter, but so far, they've been unable to prove it. On October 10, 2012, Peter's unspeakable decision to murder QC, his wife, and the mother of their children, turned his son's lives upside down. Police report, the boys are doing as well as could be possibly hoped, considering how much they have lost. The Chadwick home is full of photos of the smiling family, precious moments captured and frozen in time. On that day, Peter robbed his family of any future memories, and QC's loved ones remained haunted by the tragedy. One of the key motivational messages QC wrote on her planning whiteboard for her family had been, do your best, whatever your best is. QC followed this adage while raising her children. She never failed to make sure they knew they were loved. Her life revolved around her three sons. On the weekend before her death, QC spent hours researching supplemental math programs for her younger boys, took her older son out to his favorite Asian restaurant while he was visiting from school, and also began planning elaborate Thanksgiving family festivities. QC put her heart and soul into raising her children, and there is no doubt that her love continues to guide them today. Kui Chu is buried in Rose Hills Memorial Park in Whittier, Los Angeles County, California. Her final resting place is a peaceful one, surrounded by a beautiful moss-covered stone wall. Her headstone reads, Devoted mother to three good boys. They were her love, her life, and joy. Loved by sons, husband, brothers, sisters, relatives, and friends. Gone, but not forgotten. Today you have a unique opportunity to help put an end to a heartbreaking tragedy. You can help ensure that Gui Chu is never forgotten by spreading the word and sharing the images and descriptions of a man still at large who needs to be held accountable for the senseless murder of QC. Peter Chadwick is a five foot seven white male with brown hair and blue eyes. 
At the time of his disappearance, he weighed approximately 160 pounds. Peter may be using the alias Gregory or Pete to hide his identity. If you have any information that could assist with apprehending Peter, please call the U.S. Marshals Services Communication Center at 1-800-336-0102. A link to the most recent photo of Peter Chadwick will be included in our show notes. On behalf of QC's loved ones, we thank you. Writing and research for this episode was by Christine Penhale. You should check out her website, The True Crime Files, for in-depth articles on missing persons and unsolved murders. We'll provide a link to her website in the show notes. And now I would like to introduce two podcasts, Corpus Delecti. Hey everyone, it's Jen. And this is Lindsay. And we're the hosts of Corpus Delecti. If true crime is your thing, it's ours too. And we do it with a dash of lightheartedness and a hint of Southern charm. We cover both well and lesser known cases and have also started a series where we spend weeks at a time covering cases from certain topics. Ever wondered why there are so many cruise ship deaths and disappearances? How about how crime has affected history? What about lesser known serial killers? Corpus Delicti has you covered. Episodes are released every Tuesday and can be found on your favorite podcatcher. That's C-O-R-P-U-S-D-E-L-I-C-T-I. Hope you'll join us soon. And trace evidence. Hey, this is Stephen Pacheco, the host of Trace Evidence, a weekly true crime podcast focused on unsolved murders and disappearances. Each week, I explore a different unsolved case and take a deep dive into the victim, the events leading up to the crime, every fact we know, every question we're left with, and then a breakdown of the most popular theories revolving around that case. Each Monday, a new episode comes out, and there are more than 80 episodes of mysterious and fascinating cases to catch up on, some you've heard, and many that you haven't. If you're drawn to deep examinations of some of the most mysterious cases, give Trace Evidence a listen. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all of your favorite podcatchers. Visit trace-evidence.com for more information, and I hope you'll join me next week for another unsolved case on the next episode of Trace Evidence. The Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and all other podcast platforms. Ad-free episodes of this show are available on Stitcher Premium. If you would like to support this show and get some extra perks, including extra content, early release, and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. You can find our website by going to mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness. And on Twitter, using the handle at MadnessPod. And finally, the closing track, Feel the Madness, is provided by 
the Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerarecords.com.au slash G-E.